whether it's a masterpiece of a movie or not, maybe is debatable. I think a lot of people have come around to it being one. I think it's a masterpiece of an adaptation. Yeah. Because it takes a lot of what was working well in the novella and adds like a next step. Welcome, friends, to episode 269 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss Frank Darabont's 1994 film, The Shawshank Redemption. So my life the past week, or two weeks really, have has consisted of breaking out of prison with Andy and, uh, <laughs> you know, Shawshank. Multiple times. Getting into the research of this film was a lot of fun because we're returning to a DP that we know well, Roger Deakins. Oh, is it Deakins? I didn't realize that. That's cool. He's a cinematographer. Doing research for this film, there's a lot to find. And, and I think most of it was like trying to get to the bottom of why this is so many people's favorite movie yeah. and why it wasn't initially right away. So I've, I've done a fair amount of digging with that. I uh, I was able to convince my wife to watch this one with me. Uh, a lot of the things we cool. watch, she just, she's not interested in, but I, I was able to, to, to convince her that she might enjoy it. And I'm, I'm ha- pleased to reveal that she did enjoy it. Nice. First, first time viewing, I assume. First right? time. Yeah, she had never seen it. Very cool. So the reputation of this film, a lot of people, like we said last week, don't necessarily know that it's based on a King uh, short novella. Sure. It is in the intro. I was able to capture it. Like it's in there, but they do it during a scene where you're definitely kind of watching the guy on like who's who's on center frame, who's waving a gun around. <laughs> yeah. So so it kind of distracts you from looking down at the bottom and reading that. Sure. You know, just the reputation of it. I was reading that it's been on the IMDb top 250. It's been like the number one movie since 2008 when when it overtook the godfather wow and you know critical consensus at the time when the film came out was that it was good but the box office didn't show that and it was coming up against some heavy hitters like it, it came out right around the same time that pulp fiction oh, wow. and also forrest gump were in theaters okay yeah those are both critical darlings so so i thought this film won a bunch of awards did it or was it just nominated for a bunch? It was nominated for a bunch of awards. Awards don't necessarily reflect box office revenue. And and so like sure. you had Forrest Gump taking up a lot of that box office revenue. And then the, the Palme d'Or winning indie film, the kind of indie film was Tarantino coming out with Pulp Fiction and kind of like, yeah. you know, after Reservoir Dogs, putting himself on the map. So everybody's going to Weird see- to think about now, but like he was new at the time. That's like the art, art house film that's out. And then Forrest Gump is the broadly appealing, like Tom Hanks, you know, vehicle sure. that everybody going to see that also was kind of a you know an academy darling but this this movie got kind of forgotten and because of that it's a good year yeah it only made like 16 million at the box office on its initial run but then it gets nominated for a lot of oscars and gets re-released and we'll get into that but yeah so the reputation of this film i i it's also when watching it i think it kind of sneaks up on you it's very methodical and i think that reflects andy in his in his approach to sort of trying to escape the prison is like sure it's not flashy it's precise but it's audiences aren't weren't walking away clearly going like it's the best movie i've ever seen mm-hmm. and as time has gone on it kind of dug under people's skin and i think part of it had to do with how often it was on tv as well that was also a huge a huge step in the right direction for it i think 
But yeah, I, I, something about this film, it, it's um, one of those slow burns on people and, and for the public. And, and when I when I look at the movie, it's a great movie. It's expertly crafted. Like I said, I think that it's pretty much a masterpiece in terms of this this sort of storytelling. But again, doesn't immediately jump out to me as a favorite movie. That might come down to personal taste. I mean, we're both genre guys, so... We're looking yeah. at this and we're like, where's our where's our fantasy? Where's our sci-fi? Where's our, you know, and it, it doesn't have any of that. But it, I mean, it's really good. Um, it is it is like a, a, an uplifting film. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people like that feeling it leaves you with and it makes you feel good. It makes you feel, I don't know, like there could be justice because even as this movie highlights the injustice of the prison system, we see Andy Dufresne able to achieve justice through his actions. And that that brings me to one of my my major takeaways is that whether it's a masterpiece of a movie or not, maybe is debatable. I think a lot of people have come around to it being one. I think it's a masterpiece of an adaptation yeah. because it takes a lot of what was working well in the novella and adds a, like a next step to a lot of things. And I'll, I'll go through them as we cover it. There's a lot of these moments that are right out of the novella. And then Frank Darabont added another scene that like takes whatever that um, original scenes sort of mission statement was, whatever it was doing within the narrative and 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 follows it up with another scene that that adds on to that, that further extrapolates on that goal. And I think to great effect. It isn't just this adaptation where we're coming to it and we're saying like they just adapted everything that was in the book because they did. And I think a lot of credit is owed to King. Sure. But they elevated it in ways and, and changed, um, you know, the, the texture of it a little bit. And some of the some of the richness and the depth and that, that appears on screen here is is a little different. And I don't know, again, I and I would call it elevated. You know, it's difficult because King was writing a novella and, and kind of wanted it to be short in nature. Yeah. But getting this two and a half hour movie that feels like an epic. Well, it's not just length, though, because you could just add length and it wouldn't necessarily be an improvement. Um, sure. It, it is it is smart in the way that it changes things. It's smart in the way it adds to the story. Um, and I think it, it looks at areas where this where the novella was doing something good and it said that's good but we can do great we can take that and we can really push it um and i I think time and again i was noticing that i'm like wow that's a really smart addition and it was built organically off of what was already there it wasn't like they were bringing in a lot of elements that were completely new which you see sometimes in adaptations I mean, we're talking about King. Let's talk about The Shining, right? Let's talk about an adaptation that was very different, that stands alone kind of as its own piece of of art from King's original work and, and, you know, made changes, but is also beloved by audiences. Very different approach, like night and day different approach to what this film did. Because instead of taking what King was doing and like keeping it, but adding like additional things that like made it go further... It was like we're gonna rewrite certain things. We're gonna reimagine characters. We're gonna we're gonna change stuff dramatically. Um, but you were able to do something. I still think that was a masterpiece. Um, even if that may be controversial with some Stephen King fans, which might be listening, so apologize yeah. for that. <laughs> but I still really like The Shining. And, and and you sent me this tweet thread. I uh, read over this morning, and it was just kind of reminding me how interesting the the, the behind the scenes stuff that went on with that film and. And the controversy and the, the battle between King and um, and Stanley Kubrick. And like it made me think about, hey, well, we're covering Shawshank today. I'm really curious to know if you were able to see anything about Stephen King and like how he feels about this film, because 
I don't see a lot here to be mad about. Um, I would think he probably loves this thing. Yeah, I mean, if we're jumping into that, the Darabont-Stephen King relationship is very interesting because it's one that we've referenced in the past but haven't covered exactly. King has coined this term dollar babies, which is something that oh, he, yeah. with his short works, he was offering up-and-coming filmmakers his the rights to his materials for like a dollar. Yeah, I've heard about this, yeah. He did this with Frank Darabont early on with really? a story called The Woman in the Room. Okay, so not, not Shawshank. <laughs> not Shawshank. <laughs> right, right. But that gave them the rapport that eventually Darabont went back to King and through a handshake deal, basically, King said, you you know, I'll give you the rights to Shawshank Redemption, but mostly because Darabont had this, this idea that he wanted to try to, you know, capture that film. King didn't think that this worked as a film. He's like, I don't really see this as a film, but Darabont did. Yeah, I can see what King was thinking because it takes place over such a long period of time. It's probably you're like, how do you how do you like really show that it's going to be a challenge to show characters aging? Are you going to have to compress it in ways? He was imagining all the things that you tend to see in movies. Um, so I can see why King might might be thinking that. Also, it, it doesn't feel like this is a... It feels like this is a novella that has grown over time because of the popularity of this movie. But in King's mind, this isn't like one of his most notable works. Or at least it wasn't at the time. So I can see him being like, yeah, give it a try. Let's see what you can do with it. Um, whereas by, by uh, comparison, The Shining, I think, was one of his darlings that he was very, uh, you know, attached to the way it was going to be portrayed. And and again, getting back to why he got so angry with the changes Kubrick made. King's is like the ultimate adaptation factory for us to kind of dig into this gold mine, right? We have Carrie with the Palma and just, it just goes on Justice and on. That's just ones we've covered. And there's like a bunch yeah. more we haven't even got to yet. So many more. Yeah. Uh, but the coolest, one of the coolest parts that in cemetery, my opinion it <laughs> we can't even list them all we've done so many at this point yeah we'll be sitting here forever just <laughs> the outsider projects nobody <laughs> nobody wants that so king the body. okay i'll stop <laughs> darabont gave a five thousand dollar check to king basically saying this is what i would like to pay you for the rights is this work and king took the check said yeah you have you have the rights yeah uh king never cashed the check Really? Uh, he later framed it and returned it to darabont accompanied by a note which read in case you ever need bail money love steve that's cool yeah. That's a classy move. So again, he's kind of seeing this as as a work that he's like, yeah, I can afford to give this away for 5000 and see what this person can do with it. King has said this is one of his two favorite adaptations of his work. What do you think the other one is? Uh, Stephen King on his own adaptations. Because uh, like, I don't always trust his his opinion on this stuff. Yeah. Um, but is it one we've covered? It is one we've covered. Is it Pet Cemetery? It's not Pet Cemetery. Okay. That was my guess. It is in this collection, though. Oh, is it Stand By Me? Yes. Okay. So Stand By Me, he's gone on record since Stand By Me and Shawshank Redemption is his two favorite adaptations of his work. Again, staying faithful, making good changes. Uh, and then the connection that's interesting here is... I, I stand corrected because I just kind of cast shade at him and his opinion on his adaptations. But like, those are two good choices from what we've seen. It's a good choices. For adaptations that like take something and really bring it to life and do something interesting and 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 uh, transformative yet keeping at the heart of it, 
Like, there, there's so much to like in both of these adaptations. I, I can see why he'd choose them. I think that he likes adaptations that mirror his work more than change things from his work. Like, he wants to see them brought to screen in a very faithful way. So these two kind of uh, check those boxes. And so Rob Reiner was the co-president or co-owner of uh, Castle Rock Entertainment, which they made the body into an adaptation of Sam for St- with Stand By Me. And I think like 1983 or five, four or five, somewhere in that range. And, you know, that did reasonably well. Well, Darabont gets in with, after he gets the rights, he works on a screenplay. Uh, you know, it took him like five years. I don't think he, he was kind of noodling with it for a long time. And then eventually he, over like an eight week period, wrote uh, a treatment for it, wrote a screenplay. And then eventually would get together with Castle Rock Entertainment and Rob Reiner. And their whole interaction is really cool as well. Because he was the co-founder of this of this company, Castle Rock. He's obviously a well-known director, had already worked with King's work. And then he he liked the script and offered Darabont between two and three million dollars if he was able to direct it himself. So Rob Reiner was like, let me get let me let me get that script. Yeah, let me wow. direct this movie. <laughs> and uh, Castle Rock offered uh, to finance any other film Darabont wanted to develop as well for, for trading the script to him, basically. So that's tempting. But he held on to it. He wanted to do it himself. Yeah, fairly up and coming director. Like he, we'll get into some of his work, but um, he seriously considered the offer, citing growing up poor in Los Angeles, believing it would elevate his standing in the industry, and that Castle Rock could have contractually fired him and given the film to Reiner anyway. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but he chose to remain on as the director. You know, everybody's working in good faith here. It seems, uh, saying in a 2014 Variety interview, "You can continue to defer your dreams in exchange for money, and you know." die without ever having done the thing you set out to do get busy living or get busy dying exactly so (laughs) it's kind of a hopeful human perseverance story here on his own with his with his art so that's kind of cool to see uh reiner stayed on served as darabont's mentor on the project instead which can you imagine like someone who's already adapted king's work like a known director in your corner that's helping you out like that that could be huge for someone coming up. that's generous of him to do yeah so within two weeks of showing the script to castle rock darabont had a 25 million dollar budget to make his film and pre-production began in january of 1993 that's awesome man and, and i think we got a great movie out of it and a great adaptation that's the happy ending right is that like what if it, it didn't work out for him you know he stuck by stuck to his guns and it didn't work out but we love to hear the the journey ending and happiness and yeah success story He'd be the first one to tell you, too. It's not like this stuff happens overnight. You know, many authors and many filmmakers like it seems like they're these overnight successes. And that's just not the case, like 90 percent of the time. So I'm curious about Frank Darabont then. Where was this at in his career? It sounds very early, but he had done some other stuff. He's a film director, screenwriter and producer. He's been nominated for three Academy Awards and a Golden Globe Award. In his career, he was primarily a screenwriter for horror films such as A Nightmare on Elm Street, Three Dream Warriors, The Blob, 1988. I didn't realize that was Frank Darabont. That's cool. He screenwrote screenwrote these. Yeah. And then he also screenwrote The Fly, too. Okay. <laughs> Coincidence with other projects. We have been... not yet covered that, but I, I suspect at some point that'll be a bonus episode. Especially now that I know that Frank Darabont did the screenplay. That's interesting to me. Yeah. And in, in, our, in our Fly coverage, we kind of talked about how the special effects department... Uh, the head of that kind of moved to direct The Fly 2. So there's a lot of connective tissue here for us with recent projects. Totally. Um, as a director, he's known for his film adaptations of Stephen King's novellas and novels such as The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, and The Mist. Oh, I didn't realize Frank Darabont did The Green Mile. Yes. I, bl- I do remember The Mist, um, reading about him doing that. Um, 
that's so interesting. Both of those adaptations and, and books are in that category of I've kind of seen them. I, I think I actually watched the entirety of The Mist. There's another movie called The Fog, right? That's John Carpenter. Yeah, a different okay. movie. That's the movie I haven't completely seen. I have seen all of The Mist. Okay. The Mist is, yeah, the one with the guy who played the Punisher. Yes. Okay, I have seen that movie. The Green Mile is a movie that I've only ever seen parts of. I've ever, never actually watched the entire movie from start to finish. So at some point, we'll have to get to that one, too. Yeah, that'll be a fun one. That's another one we want to cover because it's King outside of his usual horror. and you know. That's, Although yeah. I will admit, after covering this and doing um, The Body fairly recently, I'm like, I kind of want to get back into some horror, Stephen King, you know, like, sure, yeah. I want to get back into the spooky stuff, man. He's, yeah, I love the spooky. He's stuff. really good at that. <laughs> Darabont is also known for developing and executive producing the first season and the first half of the second season of, of the AMC horror series, The Walking Dead. The first half of the second season. I, I wanted to like, what the hell happened in with that show? Because I love the Darabont parts of The Walking Dead and it's a show I fell off of like many people I think as it went on I stuck around for a while and gave it lots of chances and there are some you know moments in later seasons that are good but those those early episodes had such promise and it was it was refreshing in a way that I didn't expect a zombie show to be and by the end of it it felt like it was it had lost a lot of that and and you know I attribute at least some of that to losing Frank Darabont who seemed like he had some sort of creative idea about what he wanted to do with this zombie movie or zombie show that it clearly, you know, AMC or the producers or whoever didn't agree. Yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I know Kirkman was really involved who wrote the comics for, for Walking Dead. I don't oh, know if yeah. there were some differences between the two of them, possibly. I'm just yeah. speculating. I have no idea. But uh, yeah, that first season, I remember for a long time with The Walking Dead, us being genre guys, like I remember going around telling people that first season of The Walking Dead just was like a great encapsulation of a first season of television. Yeah. And like that was the beginning of prestige television and uh, us kind of heading in that direction. Or at least, you know, HBO had been doing it for a while. Different. It was on a different network. It's interesting to look back at the first season and see little things that they dropped, like little things that like Darabont was playing with that, that just totally get abandoned by later seasons. Yeah, really interesting how that's a that whole show is there should be a study done on The Walking Dead because <laughs> like they had a, yeah. one of the biggest audiences out there and then just continued to go. Uh, even losing quite a bit of. Audience. I mean, you, I'd put it. I'd put it in the same category as like Lost in a show that. Um, went on longer than it should have and like and like su and suffered for it i think lost held on to more of its viewership Lo sure. the walking dead was down i'm, I'm to not like saying they're, they're the same but like there's some similarities in the fact that it's just like too much of it it's too much is not always a good thing is guess what i'm yeah. trying to get at yeah and then they spun off like a thousand shows can you imagine a version of the lost that only had like 12 episodes a season and was like five seasons long that yeah. could have been a fucking amazing show and instead, it got drawn out overly long, and they it got bloated, and there was like so much. Like Lindelof is an amazing storyteller, but even he was struggling to figure out what the hell to do with this to to fill all that time. Yeah, it was, and you know, there's many people on that show. Like it was yeah. JJ and Lindelof. JJ Abrams, yeah. Clearly, you know, less is more in this case. It's funny because like for the longest time, when I thought of the name Frank Darabont, I thought of the drama surrounding The Walking Dead. But really, like I should be thinking about Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile and, and The Mist. And yep. Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, you're definitely right. Those are the things I think most people know him by. Interesting that like, you know, Frank Darabont was was in the media a lot because of the Walking Dead situation. So the development of this film is is uh, worth looking at. Darabont has listed his uh, works of director Frank Capra as inspirations, including Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life, describing them as tall tales. He likened Shawshank Redemption to a tall tale more than a prison movie. 
He also cited Goodfellas as an inspiration on the use of dialogue to illustrate the passage of time in the script and the prison drama Birdman of Alcatraz, directed by John Frankenheimer. While scouting locations uh, for this film, he ran into Frankenheimer, who was scouting for his own prison set project called Against the Wall. Darabont recalled Frankenheimer took time out of his scouting to provide Darabont with encouragement and advice. Nice. Speaking yeah. of the Birdman of Alcatraz, we have this Birdman in this movie, um, and my wife who was watching with me, um, she does not like narratives where animals die. Um, mm-hmm. So when she saw the little baby bird in the guy's pocket, she had to stop and look it up and see if the bird dies. Because I couldn't remember. She goes, does the bird die? And I'm like, I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. I can't tell you for sure. So she had to go look it up. And she's like, okay, good. It doesn't. But she also saw an interesting note. And that was that um, the little maggot that it eats, they, they had to for some reason. Maybe it's PETA or somebody. It's like they decided to wait for the maggot to die of natural causes before feeding it to the bird so that an animal wasn't like being harmed on set. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, good attention to detail there, guys. Yeah, Yeah, like the maggot itself couldn't be harmed, so they waited for it to die of natural causes, then fed it to the bird. (laughs) Strange to me that they wouldn't. I guess it's like wiggling in the shot, and then, but there's a cutaway, so why wouldn't you swap it out with a dead one? They don't need to wait for that specific maggot to die. I mean, maybe they did. Maybe it was a different maggot that had died of natural causes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's good, I guess. You know, like it's good to see them them uh, standing by their morals and doing the right thing. <laughs> it's just funny, man. The stuff that goes on, right? Yeah. So principal photography for this film took place over three months. They regularly were filming up to 18-hour days, six days a week, which that's brutal. And that kind of outside the norm. <laughs> yeah, outside the norm, I would say. You know, you want to shoot. Does that go against, uh, go against Union, I would imagine? No, you're just hitting overtime. Everybody's making overtime. Oh, okay. I, I don't, you know, I don't, you know, it depends. It depends on the union and some other things. But 18 hour days aren't a no go. It just means that people are getting paid well and there's meal tickets well, and good. there's all kinds of stuff that, that go into it. 12 hour days are pretty much standard. And, yeah. you know, I know you do a lot of those. Have you ever done an 18 hour day on a set? I've done an 18 hour day, but it was mostly because there was a a, a gap in between. So there was like some downtime. Oh, okay. Like, like a break period. Yeah. Yeah. But you still get paid. You know, I was still there getting paid because, and they needed, they, they couldn't send us home and bring somebody else in. And so it just, you know, it's nice to get paid for stuff like that. But 12 hour days are pretty much the norm. And honestly, uh, depending on what market, if you're doing advertisement or if you're doing, you know, uh, commercial work or something like that. Tens are, are pretty, pretty um, standard as well. So talking about how, you know, filming for six days a week, 18 hour days, like you can, ex- you can expect tensions to get high at that point. Freeman described the filming saying, most of the time the tension was between the cast and director. I remember having a bad moment with the director, had a few of those. Freeman f- referred to Darabont's required multiple takes of a scene which he considered had no discernible differences. For example, the scene where Andy first approaches Red to procure a rock hammer took nine hours to film and featured Freeman throwing and catching a baseball with another inmate throughout it. The number of takes that were shot resulted in Freeman turning up to filming the following day with his arm in a sling. Freeman sometimes simply refused to do the additional takes. Robbins also said that the long days were difficult. Darabont felt that making the film taught him a lot. Quote, a director really needs to have an internal barometer to measure what any given actor needs. He found his most frequent struggles with deacons, though. 
Darabont favored more scenic shots, while Deakins felt that not showing the outside of the prison added a sense of claustrophobia, and it meant that when a wide scenic shot was used, it had more impact. Interesting. I mean, we got that sweeping sh- like helicopter shot at the beginning that I thought was really incredible. That really showed the entire prison, and it showed the yard in the back and all the prisoners walking, and I, I thought, like, there's a lot that goes into making that that shot work. Um, I assume it was a helicopter at the time, and, and it looked it looked amazing. I tend to be on the side of Deacons in this case because I think you want to play with the psychology of the of the audience, right? Like you you want it to kind of be merciful when they get uh, a wide shot because it feels like you're you're lessening that claustroph- claustrophobic feel. And I I think they found a good balance. I'm not saying that they yeah. went one one way or the other. Say, I I think both have merits because you can look at Frank Darabont's. I, I don't know his exact argument, but I, I would see that. He might be like, you know, this isn't that kind of prison movie. Like, we want you to feel a little bit claustrophobic, but this movie is so uplifting and it's so much about freedom and the pursuit of freedom that, like, the wide shots kind of, like, remind us that it's out there and that it's attainable. Yeah, and that's kind of what what uh, Andy was seeing the whole time, right? Is Andy yeah. was, was his the, perspective, right? Yeah, his, he's the character that could still see that there was something out there. So maybe there's something to that argument. Yeah. I just tend to think that... You're going to have those shots in the movie, just fewer and far between. Right. And and I, I agree with you. I think they did find a good balance, you know, whether or not one or the other and f- felt like they, they were listened to and, and got steamrolled. I don't know. But um, I, I think the balance that was, was struck here was good. I wanted to ask you before we move on too much from it. We talked about the legendary behind the scenes drama of The Shining, where uh, Kubrick was asking these actors to do scenes like Guinness Book of World Records numbers of times, frequent takes. And I remember talking with you and asking you, like, why that was a why was that a thing? What, you know, what was being done? What was being achieved? And it sounds like something similar is going on here, probably not to that you know extent, but sounds like some some significantly long, you know, moments where they're just taking scenes over and over again. And I'm curious to know if your feelings about this has changed at all over time, because that was years ago that we talked about it. Or, or just like how you feel about it now that you've been working in the industry more. Like, what's the benefit? Okay, so if I'm going to put my foot in my mouth here a little bit, Kubrick, when he was making The Shining, and Darabont, when he's making this film, were very different filmmakers coming from different. I think that what you're seeing with Darabont might be a little bit of not being sure of himself. And he kind of says that in that quote. I don't. I think that he should have known earlier. He said, like, he needs to have a barometer for, like, what the actors need. I don't know if that was him admitting like what I did was justified or if that was him admitting like maybe I needed to pull back some being I can see being unsure. So like you're seeing what you're getting on the day and you're worried that for whatever reason it's not there. And so you want it's reassuring to have a lot of multiple takes that you have all this material to go through and really try and cobble together the best take. Sure. And one of the puzzle pieces with this is Freeman saying that there were some of them were indistinguishable. So it's not a lot of direction where they're changing up their performance or anything like that. It sounds like he's getting a lot of coverage and a lot of different things that he can cut around with and know that he's safe in the edit. Now, again, this is getting into some speculation. Like I, I don't know any of this stuff for sure, but morally how I feel about it and like sort of understanding what someone like Kubrick was attempting to do are two different things, right? Would I do this to people? No, 
Yeah. Uh, like intentionally, am I going to do that to somebody? No, I, I'm just not going to be that kind of person because that's kind of like authoritarian, like dictatorship filmmaking. And so, so what are you saying that was the difference between what Kubrick was doing? I think what Kubrick was doing was he was psychologically torturing his actors okay. versus someone who's unsure of themselves. And every time, because like there's a lot of different scenes that went on like that. And I know like he has infamous treatment of Shelley Duvall. Um, Scatman Carruthers and like people like that. Like, do you think like every time that's what he was doing, or is it just like I guess to what end? Is is, is he try? He's trying to get something from the performance, right? He's trying to. Uh, well, so in The Shining, they're like going insane. The, yeah. All the characters are going insane. He wants these people to actually be. Or going they're at insane. least at their wits' end, like f- yes. you know, afraid, like losing. They're, it. Exactly, yeah. afraid. They're they're coming apart at the seams. That's what he wanted to get. And I think part of this gets into like, he's almost like method directing versus like method acting. Now, but he was famous for doing this in like all of his movies, right? Not necessarily. Not to this extent. Not to this extent. Now, I definitely think he was meticulous and he got lots of takes of everything, but not to like torture his actors because that's that's what he was doing here. Something specific to The Shining that stood out then. Yeah, okay. that's in, and Kubrick is that kind of guy that that again authoritarian filmmaker that like isn't interested in collaboration as much as he's interested in like this is gonna be what it's gonna be. Yeah, I think that Kubrick's a genius, and I think that like maybe some of that stuff worked for him. But was it worth the was the proof in the pudding? Was it worth the torment? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't that's know. up to I guess film historians to figure out and audiences to decide. Yeah. Uh, in this case, I think Darabont was a little inexperienced. And, you know, I'm sure that someone like Deakins was probably saying, like, we got it. We got it. We got it. And he's like, we need more. We need more. Yeah. Early director, maybe, maybe unsure of himself. I could see that. So that's that. Yeah. And I also think that, like, I haven't been there. I, you know, I haven't been at the helm of a $25 million film. And, like, you know, it's a lot of pressure. That's, uh, I guess, the other the other side of the coin. Yeah. And I mean, like, your legacy often is built and, and can sort of, you know, rise and and shine or or crumble based off of something like this like you're it's kind of your first big shot and that's a lot of pressure again so like how do you how do you handle that how how does that translate um i think the scary thing is that like when these films keep working like this film is kind of a masterpiece seen as a masterpiece so is the shining and they did all these takes and so do people look at it and go like i need to do a million takes to get it to yeah i hope not you know i think it's about being like an intentional you need to be intentional with your art and like know what you what know what you're going in to get and not just like fishing for something yeah right yeah i can totally see that like have a plan and yeah, multiple takes, that's understandable, but there's got to be a, a sort of <laughs> within reason element to that, right? Yeah, totally. So uh, for the scene depicting Andy's escape from the prison, Darabont envisioned Andy using his miniature rock hammer to break into the sewage pipe, but he determined that that was not realistic. He instead opted for a large piece of rock. While the film portrays the iconic scene of Andy escaping to freedom through a sewer pipe described as a, quote, river of shit, Robbins crawls through a mixture of water, chocolate syrup, and sawdust. Um <laughs> Of his own work, w- considering the scene, Deacon says that this this scene, when he sort of comes out of the tube and he's in the water and he's, you know, escaped and shirtless and it's raining and he's this freedom moment. Uh, he's Deacon considers the scene to be one of his least favorite that he shot, saying that it, he overlit it. In response, Darabont disagreed with Deacon's self-assessment. He said that the time and precision taken by Deacon's and their limited filming schedule meant he had to be precise in what he could film and how. In a, tw- in a 2019 interview, he stated that he regretted that this meant that he could not film a close-up of Robin's face as he climbed out of the hole from his cell. I, I think a lot about how logistically some of these films get made. And, you know, we just talked about nine 
nine hours or whatever it was to get that one shot. And then directors find themselves and filmmakers find themselves with their with their backs against the wall and then things need to be cut. Yeah. Oh, we don't have enough time to do something. Yeah. Yeah. And and someone you need someone like Deacons who is experienced enough and, and skilled enough to be like, what can we do quickly? And he he looks at it and he's very critical of it. But I think that moment for a lot of people is like one of the most memorable moments from the movie. It's what like you know, if you've seen this movie, you probably remember that scene. And then I, I would argue there's maybe one other moment, which is the um, the warden, Morgan Freeman, uh, Red, and um, I think it's the the guard all in the uh, in Andy's cell looking through the hole as the camera backs into it and reveals the depth of the hole. And how that, I, which I actually caught this time, how that mirrors that we see frequently the shot from inside the vault. Whenever the warden would open up the, the vault that was behind a painting, much like behind the poster, and we would get a reverse shot from inside of it, right? Um, and, and how, like, that's become, like, something you see a lot now. Um, but, you know, it was cool to see, you know, I, I don't know like, how new this was or not. I'm sure it wasn't new, but, like, it was cool to see that used to great effect. And then I, I did like that that sort of mimics, like, that sets up that scene later where you've already sort of seen something like it. And yet now it's been turned on its head in a way. And that's that that level of detail that I think uh, when you see that in filmmaking, you appreciate, right? Like that, that's the kind of thing that, that means something like there's, there's, um, it's a pattern, like there's, there's repetition to it. So in getting back to what I was talking about, directors backs against the wall, they need to get the footage, they're constantly in a state of just like fight or flight, because they're having to get all their shots in on that day. And maybe they go long, maybe they, you know, they have to change locations and things change on the fly. And how Ultimately, these things come together and no one has any idea that any of that's going on when you watch this film. And that's and, and it's permanent, too. You think about the legacy of this film, too. And that's why someone like Deakins is like looking at this saying like, oh, it's overlit. Yeah. Two more thoughts about that. That moment. Um, mm-hmm. One is it doesn't look like a Roger Deakins moment. And I think that's what he's reacting to. Right. Yes. So I think he he's worried that the, he's not shaping the light in the way that he wants to. Yeah. Right? He's the like, way that we see him typically do. Right. They talk about painting with light a lot and, and like how, a, you know, you're working with your gaffer. The DP's working with their gaffer to to be intentional and not just like expose the scene. Anybody can set up some lights and get it up to the level of what a camera needs to make it look exposed correctly. But to to do it with an intention to evoke an emotion is the biggest thing that, that goes into something like this. And so for Deacons to to look at this and say, I could have done better. I think a lot of artists can empathize with that, especially backs against the wall, but still greatness can come out of stuff like this. Yeah, and that was my second thought is just that it still is one of the most iconic moments from this movie. And arguably that that puts it up there with some of the most iconic shots in film history. Um, You know, and it's something that the Deacons looks at and wishes he could do over, you know, so it's just funny how that can happen, right? Yeah. I think it's about time we jump into the plot here. I have tons more. I have, you know, 18 pages of notes here. So we'll see what we can get to. (laughs) But in early 1947, Portland, Maine, banker Andy Dufresne arrives at Shawshank State Prison to serve two consecutive life sentences for murdering his wife and her lover. He is befriended by Ellis Red Redding, an inmate and prison contraband smuggler serving a life sentence who procures a rock hammer and a large poster of Rita Hayworth for Andy. Assigned to work in the prison laundry... Andy is frequently sexually assaulted by the sisters and their leader, Boggs Diamond. In 1949, Andy overhears the captain of the guard, Byron Hadley, complaining about being taxed on an inheritance and offers to help him shelter the money legally. After an assault by the sisters nearly kills Andy, Hadley beats and paralyzes Boggs, who is subsequently transferred to another prison. Andy is not attacked again. 
Warden Samuel Norton meets Andy and reassigns him to the prison library to assist elderly inmate Brooks Hatlin, a front to use Andy's financial expertise to manage financial matters for other prison staff guards from other prisons and the warden himself. Andy begins writing weekly letters to the state legislature requesting funds to improve the prison's decrepit library. One of the obvious changes was Morgan Freeman, a black man playing the, you know, uh, red character. And I love that there's this line where he says, maybe it's because I'm Irish and how like. So the, he's asked like, you know, what does red stand for? Or what, why do they call you red? Why do they call you red? And he says, maybe because I'm Irish. Yeah. And, and I love that because it was not only funny, but also like, I feel like a nod towards the book because I think that's the reason given, right? Because he has red hair or something and then like, because he's Irish. And so it's like a nod towards the character in the book, but also playful, right? Um, so I love that little twist. And then I think that interracial dynamic uh, between these characters and their friendship is one of the like things that makes this movie so heartwarming in a way. Like, I, I think it's something that people are drawn to and really like here. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, Morgan Freeman gives one of the greatest performances of his life here. Absolutely. I think, too. Like, he... Yeah. This doesn't work if they're but if they both don't nail it and they do. Yeah. The other thing, too, is like we talked about last week, the idea of the injustice of the of the prison system in general and the way that like black people are at a heavy disadvantage when it comes to a lot of things with the prison system and the justice system. So seeing him get rejected repeatedly, saying the same thing over and over again, um, you know, that's more true to life. And I think that that's like representation that, that should needed to, to happen in this film. As much as I do give Frank Darabont credit for this change, the, the prison still seemed very white to me. Um, like it seemed like there were like, I, I, I'm struggling to think of other black characters other than red. There were a few, nobody, nobody that was a speaking role. Yeah. Which is still sort of a bizarre thing to do. Just because of the reality of how much the prison system disproportionately imprisons people of color. Uh, you know, I don't know. This is probably going to, again, be me putting my foot in my mouth. But I, what, I don't know the percentages of black people in Maine. I, you know, I don't that's know true. if yeah. maybe that's a representation of that time period in that in that area, maybe. But but again, I, I, I kind of think that there would be more. I would think so. I, but that's kind of devil's advocate. But I, I do want to shout out Liz Glotzer, who was the producer who suggested the change. Apparently, when she read it, she ignored the fact that he was a white Irish man and just kind of was looking around to see like improvements they could make for the story. One thing that this reminds me of, um, and I forgot to mention last week when we did cover the novella, is that Morgan Freeman has since said that Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption is one of his favorite books, perhaps his favorite. Oh, wow. Very cool. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I'd like to think that that's because he has a very close connection to it. I'm sure that plays into it. (laughs) There's a good job that's done with sort of setting up the mystery, but this is very much not the mystery that the book was. It's changed enough to where I think we're early on, we're let in on a couple more things. Whereas we, we, you know, you even made the apt comparison to the Sherlock and Watson and sort of the mystery elements of the story playing out. This didn't play like a mystery to me. It feels more, and this is kind of Darabont's hand on this, I think too. This feels like an epic tall tale, as he calls it. Yeah. Like it just, it feels like something this larger than life story that's sort of about more than just some, some characters in prison. It's not really about the prison system. It's not really about, it's more about, you know, the human spirit, which we get in, in Stephen King's novel as well, but also 
I, I've looked into this as well, and and people have said that there's like a lot of religious allegory in the film. Well, look at the change they did with the with the warden, have him be this like Bible thumper who um, is obviously very hypocritical. Was he not already a Bible thumper in the book? I don't I remember. He was. I mean, maybe he was, but I, I definitely wasn't as like prominent as it was here. You know. Well, and so like the comparisons, I guess, are many, but to get into a few of them, there are uh, the prison is seen as hell. The, the, uh, whatever, what's the place called that they end up at? It's Zewantanejo. Zewantanejo. You wouldn't be able to find him, man. You forgot the name. (laughs) I wouldn't. I'd have to look on the You remember the name? Ah, shit. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So anyway, uh, that scene is paradise and that's sort of heaven versus hell being the prison system. And then you're seeing, uh, the, the warden comes in and he kind of quotes scripture and he says, I am the light kind of quoting Jesus. And in that way, being like a false prophet, kind of Satan, Lucifer type figure, uh, and then you get, um, in some ways, I guess there's some comparisons that people have made for Andy being sort of a Jesus figure within the system, Interesting. um, giving, being very giving and, and that sort yeah. of thing. And then ultimately like he, when he escapes, he's in a very cross-like pose in the uh, rain and stuff. And so there's okay. many comparisons with this. Not that I think that like, that's much more interesting to dig into than that. Uh, Darabon has said that that, that wasn't intentional, but I think there's a lot to it there, but I think that's also just in showing that like. The, it's layered. There's there's a lot going on here that that transcends just a story about somebody escaping from prison. And and I think you know hope and and the reason that it feels like such an you you keep talking about it as an uplifting film. It's uplifting at the end. I don't I you know I don't feel that it's uplifting throughout. Although there are moments of triumph, like um, you know him getting some of his people passing their GEDs and helping and and there are there's progress that's made. But I think it's uplifting at the end. You see, uh, Andy repeatedly trying to be altruistic and to treat his fellow inmates as human beings. And that's something that is in the book, but I think Frank Darabont smartly sort of takes it and takes it to another level. And that's evidenced by a scene we haven't quite gotten to yet, but where he plays the music over the loudspeaker, which is not in the book, um, but it's a great mirror because it's the same concept basically as him getting the beers for his coworkers on the roof it's just him sort of given away to get being altruistic and giving to his, to his um, fellow inmates. And he does it again there, even, you know, just knowing that he's going to face consequences for it. And that, um, that is sort of a, just an act that, that is, I think, inspirational and sort of um, uplifting in a way. So it's like within the system, he's still finding ways. And I think that that is like that is hopeful to a lot of people who, who feel like you can still find ways to to do that kind of thing. Well, and it's fighting oppression, too, right, which is something I think is universal, something that, that spans generations. To talk about the, the music change and adding that, I thought so smart because you're adapting to the medium, right? Like yep. if you say this song is playing in a book, it doesn't have the same effect as playing it for a prison of people who are reacting yeah. to it and seeing it. And I love the way that this this interacts with art. If you were in prison, and we talked about this a little bit last week, like all I would want to do is consume art. That's all. That's the only way I feel that I could pass enough time to, to keep myself. One, it's a form of escapism. Two, it's a form of understanding humanity and people and connecting and educating yourself. Like there's so much to that. And I think thinking of King specifying it and making this library so important, these books so important and getting these to these people. 
um, it's a lifeline. And I think it's so cool to see like art continuing to pop up in that way throughout throughout the film. And we see that one inmate gets to listen to his Hank Hank Williams record too in the in the library, which is like a nice little addition. I've always said like the library system and the park system are the things that we've gotten right. And and you know I hate yeah. to see funding pulled from either of them, but in 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 America those are two things that I think we're doing well. And the the library yeah, is more such of a, that, please. <laughs> yeah, more of that. I love seeing the library praised like this because you see all these these inmates and and like like you said he's listening to, to hank williams and they're all reading books and I, I you know it's very cool and i like seeing the older uh the older librarian get a bigger role here in in having like a really heartfelt story so one scene that i definitely want to talk about is the scene on the roof where they're 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 mopping the tar and they're retarring the the roof specifically with respect to the filmmaking and the way and the, the economy of the shots here i was just blown away by one specific thing when when Hayden, I believe his name is, grabs Andy and runs him up to the edge and he's about to throw him over, there's this shot that we see. It starts from a bird's eye perspective up above and we kind of reveal that there are people down below and we're looking down on Hadley going to throw him off the roof. And then that, that shot cranes down and kind of turns at the same time, basically parallaxing them. So there's this parallax effect that's happening because we're like, tilting up and craning and and rotating around these people. And uh, what I think is cool about it is we're seeing the threat from bird's eye view. We're coming down and we're seeing over the shoulder, we're seeing the fear in Andy's eyes because he's possible, but he's also standing strong and telling him like, he, he feels confident enough to still be able to say like, this is why I'm. Yeah, it's like a blend of confidence and fear. And, and, and yeah, fear, yeah. yeah. And then we get this rotation where we're seeing the, the guard Hayden and hit how mad he is. And we see like a profile of them both for a second. And then we're over the shoulder from Andy looking at Hayden. And then in the background, we also see all of the inmates are no longer working and they're like staring at the scene that's unfolding and the economy of one shot like that. And this can again, come from not having enough time to reset the camera and get a bunch of different stuff. Now this was clearly planned out in the way that it was because it involves a crane and in the way that the, the shot plays out, but it's, it could have been, bird's eye shot cut to sh over the shoulder re shot reverse shot and like and then sh cut to the the inmates in the background and i just thought that that economy and the way that it's so visually interesting is is great to notice from whether that was frank darabont's idea whether that was deacon's i'm sure they both had a lot of input with it but that shot stood stood out to me in that moment and it was it, it's like a, a good example that i wanted to bring up of like a moment that i think shows how this film is like deceivingly well crafted that's awesome man and honestly it's not a, a moment that i've particularly stood out to me but i love that like it's that sometimes that stuff like if you don't notice it doesn't mean it's not working on you um right and what i one thing that stands out to me from that moment from the storytelling point of view is a lot of the changes that were made to hadley the guard and how um much like the the warden I think there's a lot more effort to make these characters like overtly villainous to give us a target for our frustrations that then when they get their comeuppance, we get that release of like finally some justice, even though these characters are ostensibly the ones in charge of justice. We see them being terrible, right? And maybe not in this moment because Hadley is the one who like gives the beers and stuff to them. But like throughout, we see him as this like instrument of violence being turned against the prisoners. But he kills a guy, you know, like I bet Stephen King found it funny that uh, 
Frank Darabont introduced multiple deaths into his his uh, prison book that weren't there originally. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because everybody probably yeah. looks at it and you know thinks that he's Stephen King. He's the horror guy. He's you know responsible for all these murders and deaths. But this movie actually has a higher body count just from like characters that we you know follow and see um, than, than than even the book does. Yeah, it was surprising to see some of the some of the ways that they did that. But I, I think that's shorthand for showing evil, like you said, like, we're, we're you know, it's it's getting that idea across in, in less time. Yeah, I mean, in some ways you might argue, oh, that, that that's more sort of broad, um, whereas maybe what King was doing was maybe a little subtler and like the system itself, which isn't an individual is is more um, being criticized in the novel and the novella. Um, as opposed to where you might look at the movie as more of a, a criticism of corruption um, and, and, and the way that plays out with these two characters. Um, whereas like the novella really felt a lot more like that. There's just that the prison system is terrible. And, and, and that was kind of the villain, even though the warden sucks in the, in the novella, he's just a lot worse here. And, well, there's and Hadley multiple, sucks, there's... but he's a lot worse here, <laughs> you know, that kind of yeah. stuff. It also helps, this is another smart change, cutting it into only one sort of evil warden rather than having multiple yeah. spread out and, and how that changes it. If it's this one guy the whole time, then that's your that's your main villain and he's doing all the evil villainous things throughout. Sure. Um, you know, you, you, you know that this guy deserves it by the end of it. And like, sure, maybe that is broader, but like it makes it, it it's also like the trade off in being broader is that it the emotion is there and it connects with the yeah. viewers and we cheer for it. Because we're yeah. able to cheer for it, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that's a good thing to remember, right? Yeah, I, I and you know, we have a sordid history with religion. I think both of us and sordid. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I like it. <laughs> sordid is a bad word for that, but anyway, I uh, like to see hypocritical religious figures get their come up, come up and sure, for sure, sure. You know, if you're preaching that kind of stuff and you don't stand by it and you don't mm-hmm. walk the walk, I have no sympathy. It's interesting because they are able to use that in a way to shift the blame a little bit, I think away from the, the sort of self-righteous justice system. And instead there's a little bit of the self-righteous religious system behind it. Um, now you could say those two things are perhaps intrinsically tied to each other in our country. I think that's fair to say. Um, but it, it, it does again, feel like there's a little bit less blame put on the prison system in this version of the story. Yeah, I can see it. So, uh, moving into the next bit of plot here. Brooks is paroled in 1954 after serving 50 years, but he cannot adjust to the outside world and eventually hangs himself. The legislature sends a library donation that includes a record that Andy plays an excerpt of over the public address system and is punished with solitary confinement. After his release from solitary, Andy explains to a dismissive Red that hope is what gets him through his time. In 1963, Norton begins exploiting prison labor for public works, profiting by undercutting skilled labor costs and receiving bribes. Andy launders the money using the alias Randall Stevens. In 1965, Andy and Red befriend Tommy Williams, a young prisoner incarcerated for burglary. A year later, Andy helps him pass his GED exam. Tommy reveals to Red and Andy that his cellmate at another prison had claimed responsibility for the murders for which Andy was convicted. Andy approaches Norton with this information, but Norton refuses to listen, and when Andy mentions the money laundering, Norton sends him back to solitary confinement. 
Norton has Hadley fatally shoot Tommy under the guise of an escape attempt. Andy refuses to continue the money laundering, but Norton threatens to destroy the library, remove Andy's protection by the guards, and move him to worse conditions. Andy is released from solitary confinement after two months, and he tells a skeptical Red that he dreams of living in Zihuatanejo, a Mexican town on the Pacific coast. Andy also tells him of a specific hayfield near Buxton, asking Red once he is released to retrieve a package that Andy buried there. Red worries about Andy's well-being, especially when he learns Andy asked a fellow inmate for some rope. Let's start first with Brooks. Brooks is a character that exists in the, in the book in, in a fashion, but is very, very different and is much more front and center. And we get this whole section where we see him leave the prison and go to this halfway house, start working as a bagger, and eventually kill himself, hang himself. Puts Brooks was here up on the wood. Um, that's all a creation for the movie and i think i think it works so well yeah i would say part of this too and i know that red eventually does this stuff but taking that ending that we got in the book where red gets out and he's talking about working as a you know bag worker and the way that he's living and the way that he's feeling because we see we don't see that as much in red at the end that that feeling that he had of sort of the world being too big and we see i guess he technically says that he thought about doing crimes to get put back in as well but we kind of knew that because of brooks doing it first so i think in in taking some of the emotion and some of like that weight dropping in in our stomachs for red when he gets out and giving it to brooks so that it's like setting us up for even if you do get out it's not this like salvation. It's not you need to find purpose and and uh, moving that up for for Brooks, I think, is such a smart idea. And then showing the other side of what, what could happen if you don't have someone like Andy or if you don't have something to live for outside of outside of the prison when you get out, which is exactly what. And I think this movie does a good job of putting a point on Andy gave Red uh, like a, a reason to live afterwards. Like it wasn't just that he, you know, he has him, he hooks him up with money and gives him a job. He gave him a reason to like find purpose. And I think that that's, you know, the important bit here. Yeah. I mean, I was going to get to a lot of that same kind of stuff, but in the sense that Brooks is a personification of an issue that we see discussed in the novella. King talks about how a lot of people get out, don't know what to do with themselves. Some of them end up committing suicide. Some of them end up committing crimes to get back in. But it's all very sort of speculative. It's it's like generalizations. It's inmates talking to each other about what happens. Here we see a character go through it. And it's a smart change for the medium. Storytelling, show us the story of this happening to a character that we care about, and then drive home the tragedy of him actually killing himself. Um, we all love Brooks at that point, and and to see the fear he has, where he almost stabs the guy over get over getting released, and then seeing what happens to him is tragic. And I found like I wept during this scene; like it is very sad. Yeah, they do a good job of just really driving home how sad it is. Um, you know what helps in this scene too? Uh, what I thought is a standout. Uh, of the film is the score we haven't talked yeah. about that yet i think there's that score throughout there's like really somber and like there's many times that it's that it's the opposite where it's like triumphant but this this really drove that home too totally and you know this is like one of the smart changes you talked about the hope like we are we are given a visual metaphor for that in the harmonica that um andy gives to red and it is at first something he's unwilling to play, but then we see he just is like, for one little note, he plays it. And it shows that like at first he's very resistant to hope, 
but like there's just a little bit he's willing to engage with. And then um, that hope carries over to where when we see him in the same situation as Brooks at the end of the movie. Now, like if you're a savvy film goer, I think you would know that Red's not going to kill himself. You might not know what kind of movie you're watching and you might not have kind of caught on to it yet. And it is a Stephen King tale, right? So you might be thinking darkness is, is waiting for us and this is going to be a, just a tragic story. So like there's a chance, right? And so you're on edge and you're seeing him go through the same stuff we watched another character we liked go through. And so I, I, that's just smart visual storytelling, right? He goes to, he has the same job. He goes to the same halfway house, which like, you know, that, that really drives it home. And then we even see him climb up on the table the same way. And there's a fake out. And it's interesting because this is the second time they've, or uh, there's another time where they do this fake out with Andy getting the rope, which is another big change. I, we gave a lot of credit to Stephen King last week in the fact that he telegraphs that Andy escapes. He says, Andy escapes in the summer of whatever. And then like we go into how it happened. Frank Darabont does not do that. Instead, he leaves that mystery and he sets up and he fakes us out into thinking that he's going to show Andy Dufresne killing himself with this rope. And it's not until the reveal of the poster. And I was very careful not to like even say the word escape when I was talking about this movie to my wife because I didn't want to like. She didn't know anything about the movie. So I wanted her to not know that this was about a prison escape. I just, I just That so, must have been such a fun experience yeah. to see it that way. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that this moment was still kind of a surprise. Um, and I wanted to preserve that. And it was smart, I think, on his his part to do it because I think that just works better in a movie, right? Like all that subtlety sometimes can work, can play well, and it can be a nice little subversion to be like, oh, you know this is going to happen, so I'm going to tell it to you, and now you're going to stick around to find out how. Versus the movie being like, no, no, we're going to do a little fake out and we're actually going to um, surprise our viewers. And I think there's a good portion of people watching it who are genuinely surprised to see the reveal of that hole. And then, then when you get that shot, it works all that much better because that's the moment we get it revealed, right? He throws the rock through the through the, through the poster and then we see that shot and you're like, oh, shit. And, and there's such a cool moment of, of the, the reveal of the tunnel. So it's so fun. So I was thinking back to trying to figure out when I first saw this movie. I think it would have been like early two thousands, probably. I just remember, yeah, it took me on such a journey. I remember this this movie feels so epic in scale. And so, like you know, when we eventually got around to covering it for the podcast, and you're like, "Oh, it's a novella," I was like, "Really?" I would have thought it's this big Stephen King epic because that's how the film feels. But it's it's not. It's a briefer story than that. And and you know, I would argue that it is kind of epic in scale because of the the nature of so much time passing by and that the weight that that carries. But so one other big change we got to talk about is this character who reveals what really happened to Andy's wife, and he is the one that Andy takes under his wing. He's the one that Andy teaches, and that we see end up passing his GED. We have this nice little moment of him like not believing in himself, throwing out the test. All of that stuff, I, it's, I think that's all been added. I don't remember that explicitly in the in the novella. Um, and then the way that ends is he gets killed. He gets murdered by the warden and the guard. Um, because of Andy. he. I'm sure Andy sees it that way. Sure. No, I mean, it is because of Andy. Because he's he's going to reveal, and he says that he's willing to testify on behalf of, of what is going to be revealed here. And then the warden is worried about his own crimes coming to light. And so it's a cover up. This is not how it plays out in the novella. Yeah. In the novella, I mentioned to you last week how you could feel King in a, in a very, you know, deft way. Like he knows what he's doing. And I'm just like a, the kind of audience goer reader, really, 
that kind of picks up on this kind of stuff. And we're, we're digging into it, too, for a podcast. So we have to know what we're talking about. Um, you could see him like, like sort of covering his tracks. You're like, OK, he wrote this and then he's like, but then he sent him off to another prison and there's no way that he could get in contact with him. And that's kind of convenient. You're like, OK, but this makes more sense. Like this is what a warden who, who would have his life and livelihood on the line, possibly if this word did get out. I don't know which one's more believable, perhaps just sending him away is, but it works in what I've been talking about in making him a villain that we hate. That way, when, when when what happens with Andy, which, by the way, is a lot more elaborate, and in fact, I think Andy is even cleverer in this version of the tale than he is in the book. Like, he does a lot of stuff to specifically fuck over the warden, um, whereas the, getting, the warden getting fucked over was almost, like, beside the point. Well, it wasn't, yeah, he wasn't Satan. In, exactly. In the, it's the difference of, of him being the villain versus like the prison system being the villain and, and incarceration being the villain. But in getting back to like the way that that, that change happened, like uh, me- believable might not be the right word, but it is like the, that's more final. Him killing him means that he more won't dramatic. be able to testify. Whereas the the like him being sent away, maybe there's and a, a murder that didn't exist in Stephen King's book, which <laughs> was added for the movie. <laughs> so maybe there's a way that like in the book, Andy would have been able to get in contact and eventually use him as a resource to, to get out. But killing him means that there's no way and that the warden has all, all power. And this gets into another change that they made. Economy of cha- economy of screen time. Again, it, the interesting ways that they do this. It was a little convoluted the way that King describes it in the book, the way that he's like create. He had someone on the outside who was, you know, working with the funds, but then that guy passed away. So then he couldn't touch the funds and all these other things. And the way that the film kind of like condenses it makes it much more understandable for the audience. Like you get what's going on. You don't have to. Makes it a part of the corruption, makes it a part of the bookkeeping that he's been doing all along. It's Darabont realizing that the riches that um, Andy is able to attain by the end is going to feel more just and it's going to feel more earned if it is taken away from the villain that I've set up the warden to be. And and that change, the ripple effects of that is that it completely changes how he makes his money and how he creates this this altered uh, you know identity in order to help the warden commit the crimes, but then he turns it on him. Um, and, and he also walks this fine line of like, I don't think this was always the plan. I think this becomes the plan after what happens to, um, I, I forget the character's name, but the, the character who gets murdered. Yeah, Tommy. When he dies and 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 the, the possibility of pursuing justice for Andy, and because now that he knows who really killed his wife, like once that's all taken away, then it becomes the plan. And he's like laid the foundation for it. And so it's unclear of like how long he might have been planning to do this. It's, I don't know, but I feel like it changes. Because realistically, he could have cho- he had been digging the wall the whole time, but he could have chosen to just well, we don't know. His- we don't know exactly when he begun the wall, but it is it is implied that he must have begun it early. And we see well, we, red says like, you know, it would take a million years, but it turns out it takes 20 you know, or whatever. 19 or yeah. 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so you would think it took him most of the time that he had been doing it for a while. He also put the poster yeah. up. I, I agree. I think he was digging the wall basically the whole time because he put the poster up and also he scratched the wall and a yeah. piece chunk fell out. So that's clearly like, he couldn't you know. have done it before the poster. So at the very least, after he got Rita Hayworth. So uh, 
At the next day's roll call, the guards find Andy's cell empty. An irate Norton throws a rock at a poster of Raquel Welch, hanging on the cell wall, revealing a tunnel that Andy had dug with his rock hammer over the past 19 years. The previous night, Andy used the rope to escape through the tunnel and prison sewage system, taking Norton's suit, shoes, and ledger containing evidence of the money laundering. While guards search for him, Andy poses as Randall Stevens, withdraws over $370,000, equivalent to $3 million in 2021, of the laundered money from several banks, and mails the ledger and other evidence of the corruption and murders at Shawshank to a local newspaper. State police arrive at Shawshank and take Hadley into custody while Norton commits suicide to avoid arrest. The following year, Red is finally paroled after serving 40 years. He struggles to adapt to life outside of prison and fears that he never will. Remembering his promise to Andy, he visits Buxton and finds a cache containing money and a letter asking him to come to Zawantanejo. Red violates his parole by traveling to Fort Hancock, Texas and crossing the border into Mexico, admitting that he finally feels hope. He finds Andy on a beach in Zawantanejo and the two reunited friends happily embrace. Yeah. Um, a couple things here. Um, one, the there's also the reveal that the because well, we see how it happened, right? Like how he in in that and much in the same way mystery novel or mystery film will do this, like the reveal of how it all played out. And so we do see that when it comes to his escape. Part of it is something that um, I told my wife I would give her full credit for is that she called the uh, hammer in the Bible situation like she was like the hammers in the bible isn't it when it first when he first came and like tossed the cell and then there's the reveal that shows that it was in there salvation lies within he gives the little like little fuck you to the warden where he's like you were right salvation did you know reside within um and there's all these little things right where he's like directly saying fuck you to the warden (laughs) as he's Mm -hmm. getting and then the warden shoots himself i didn't remember that um so like that was another change um whereas i think in the book he just kind of retires in disgrace and like he's never again like considered I don't know, worth anything, um, but not as, like, directly, again, like, you know, arrested. I can't even remember if he gets arrested at all. I think he just, like, he, he just retires in disgrace because he let, like, one of his prisoners escape, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, I think that's basically what it was, yeah. Yeah, so that was cool. Um, another thing that I noticed is that, again, this movie seems a little bit less interested in sort of, like, making us think about the way we feel about prison. I think it still has that effect. Like, so to, to give credit to Frank Darabont, like I think people still watch this movie and come away maybe feeling differently about the prison system and come away feeling differently about inmates and snapping to judgment about people who have been in prison, right? Or been released from prison. But I think the novella was more directly engaging with that. And one of the ways in which it does that is it reveals what Red did to get in prison, whereas the movie doesn't. And I thought that was an interesting shift because we never find out in the context of the film, what Red did to get into prison. He says that he did it. He says murder. And it feels like this mystery that even at the end of the movie, my wife asked me, what did he do? And I told her what he yeah. did in the in the novella, but it's not in the movie. I think that's what they're going to, you know, that's what they're going to explore in Shawshank 2, I think, right? <laughs> yeah. The Shawshank Redemption 2. <laughs> Re-redemption. I don't know. <laughs> Redemptionized. <laughs> We got to break. We got to go back. We got to go back. <laughs> Andy, <laughs> to take it back to Lost. Andy and Red, we got to go back. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that is that is a good point. I never really thought about the fact that like we don't we don't get that confirmation of like what he did. 
because there's a lot of different there's premeditated murder there's a, pa- a crime of passion there's you know and like you could maybe argue it's not important but like i think it is kind of important for the character like understanding the psychology of the character if that's what you're going for and also like the, the as a as a reader it forces us to weigh whether or not we should be feeling good about red at the end and his life that he's now earned right with andy we're a little bit like like you, in, in light of what he did, how do we feel about it? The movie doesn't give us that because it doesn't tell us. So we, in fact, it, it becomes a lot more nebulous. And to me, it makes it easier to root for Red, which makes it a little cleaner. And again, like this movie in some ways has lacked some of the subtlety that perhaps is in the novella. But these more broad emotional beats are hitting really, really hard. And by the end, like when they're... You know, and this is the thing we don't see in the novella. We actually see the scene of them on the beach and like, sure, we're way far out and we don't actually like see the moment like up and close, but we see them embrace and we get that like, honestly, just like joyful moment. The movie ends on a really joyful note and we see Red overcome so much and hope pays off in a way that is dangled to us in the novella, but it's more just Red choosing to go, but we don't see the result of it. The the idea of adding in that ending to give the confirmation, I think, is a, like definitely a film thing to do. Right. I think that like I, I even read, I think that Darabont didn't necessarily want to have it and the studio wasn't going to push. And there, so they were ultimately leaving it up to his decision. And he ended up going with this ending. And I think they did some test audit testing with audiences and audience were responding really well to that, that, you know, culmination of all of this and that release. It's kind of a broad moment, but I think it works. I agree with and For once, I agree with test audiences here. I think it's good. I, yeah, I don't mind it. You know, I think there are times that this, this, this film kind of feels like that want to we've said it many times throughout. This is a broader film. And I think it, it doesn't shy away from that in a way that makes this kind of feel like a timeless, uh, universal story. Yeah. And, and like I don't mean that as a criticism when I say that, <laughs> you know, often that it, it could sound like one. And again, many people's favorite movies, maybe for that reason. And, and uh, you know, I think that, like you said, not a bad thing. And it gives that uh, the story that we see that comes come around again and again um, in a way that seeing it depicted differently, not that this like beat for beat is similar, but, you know, human experience overcoming uh, you know incredible odds and and overcoming authority and authoritarian sort of structures in that way and power of hope right like it, it's 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 given more of a physical metaphor with the harmonica but time and again hope is obviously what's keeping red alive at the end it's what drives him to go to the to that moment where he he goes out to the field and finds the rock and reads the letter um, which is another cool reveal because we don't know what's in the what's going to be under that rock. He just says to go look at it. And the reveal is that that's something he took the time to go and put there specifically to make it so that Red could come find him, um, which is another just moment of where we're like, damn, Red, you know, Andy thought of everything. You know, he's 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 like even I mean, he does this in the book, too, but like it's just like a one in a, in a bunch of ways in which he's just extremely clever in the in the movie. Might even have the shine, one might say, you know. <laughs> I, st- I don't know, man. I still don't find anything supernatural here. Yeah, um, probably not. But I would know. love to hear like, you know, I know like Dark Tower is like the kind of the piece that reveals a lot of stuff in his larger universe. It'd be funny to one day realize that like, oh, by the way, he can move shit with his mind. <laughs> <laughs> 
I kind of kind of doubt that he goes that route. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't know. He's he's got like this supernatural, like bordering on supernatural, like ability to overcome this stuff. And it's sm- like he's like a Sherlock almost figure, as we've said. Smart man. Power of intellect. I want to talk about a couple of things with the legacy of the movie. The oak tree where he leaves this for red uh, is a symbol of hope for for its film in the film. And it's considered iconic. It was in Malabar Farm State Park in Monroe Township, Richland County, Ohio. In 2011, it was partially destroyed by lightning, and then the news reported on it, and like people were going to visit it more, and then the tree eventually completely fell due to strong winds in 2016, but now, uh, after it's been cut down and moved, there's there remains a uh, an area for memorabilia, including rocks, hammers, and magnets, and stuff like that for uh, that they consider like a Shawshank Redemption sort of memorabilia area in honor of the tree. How about that, man? People go out and like leave. It's like a little shrine. Yeah. And and the prison that it was uh, filmed in was was set to be demolished. Apparently it shut down soon before the filming because of like immoral practices or something like that. Like they were they were inhumane practices going on. So the prison closed down and they actually used that site. And it's since been turned into like a tourist destination like people go there all the time and it's been kind of is it in maine it was it's in ohio it's uh the ohio state reformatory and they're, they they liked it because of the for one it was closed down and they were able to use the the facility and also you know the kind of gothic old school looking yeah. prison it's a very interesting looking prison it's not what i would have expected right like it's more visually interesting to look at than i would have imagined a prison would be uh because of that old school look and i uh, which also shout out to them for like the the way the prison uniforms looked over time, like I felt like they must have been doing research into like what prisoners actually wore in the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, because it's not what you expect for, you know, for today. It's very different. Right. And that that would be accurate to the time period. So very cool stuff. Um, such a fun movie, man. Um, I really enjoyed watching it again. I think this is probably my third or fourth time seeing it, but it had been a while. There's a lot I had forgotten. And, you know, it's nothing quite like watching it for the podcast, too. We just really get to dig into it and and analyze it and look at what's going on and look at the smart changes that are being done. Definitely my first time, you know, after after reading it, which was such a fun experience. So I I think it's time to to cast our votes on which was the better version. I do want to do that. I just one last thing I wanted to mention uh, about the cultural impact and people talking about this. Freeman and Robbins have both talked about people coming up to them. And I just wanted to note um, in an interview, Freeman said about everywhere you go, people say the Shawshank Redemption, greatest movie I ever saw. And that such praise just comes out of them. Robbins has said, I swear to God, all over the world, all over the world, wherever I go, there are people who say that movie changed my life. Yeah. No, man. And I know we've said it time and again. I know lots of people who say this is their favorite movie. I talked to a couple of friends, you know, I got answers ranging from I never turn it off when it's on TV. Like, you know, I'll always put it on. And someone said it's like a comfort movie for them, you know, which is, again, ironic considering some of the shit that goes down. But, yeah, you know, you get perspective. It's good perspective for some of the stuff that we take for granted. Totally, man. All right. So. Where are you gonna come down? Do you want to go first? Or you want me to? Yeah, I'll I'll go first. Um, I am gonna take the the movie. I like it for many reasons. I love the way that it's it's sort of like went under the radar and over time is built into this like icon of of especially like '90s filmmaking and and like King's work 
and where it stands in people's minds. Uh, Deacons, again, people don't realize that this is Deacons because they look at things like Blade Runner and, and you know, uh, yeah. Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, that yeah. kind of movie. They're looking for like the flourishes. And I think this movie does it in a, in a subtle way. Uh, it looks amazing. I think the performances for one of Freeman's best. Robbins is great. Uh, and then just, you know, overall emotional impact. Like I, I, I love this movie. I like the, the messaging of the movie. It's one of those, you know, it's been added to the registry of, of culturally significant things for, you know, the U S Congress. I think for those reasons, like it's, it's just got really strong impact from, from kind of an unassuming King story, a smaller King story that, that has great bones, obviously in the way that most King does. Uh, they, they just took it to the next level. And, and uh, yeah, I think Frank Darabont, obviously this might be the thing people will always remember him yeah, for a masterpiece. Um, I'm going to give it to the movie as well. You know, I'll go ahead and get that out of the way. Um, I, but I do think it is worth noting that um, there is a lot to be said for this novella. I, I think King did a lot of subtlety, like subtle work about making the prison system the villain um, that is interesting. And King just has some really great writing in here, right? Like uh, so many of the lines that are iconic from this film come right out of the book. Um, so, so I want to give full credit to the novella and point people towards that. I think it's worth reading, especially if you like this movie. I, I think it added a lot of depth to the movie to me and gave me an even better understanding of it. Um, so yeah, as much as I will point you to the novella, but like this movie is such a smart adaptation that is in some ways transformative. It adds, but it, it keeps so much of what makes that book good. This is like a, a, a you know, if you're looking for like blueprints of adaptations that really work, um, that I think you can look at and learn a lot from, I think this is a great one for that. Um, and, and it feels faithful even as it makes changes. And that's always a, a hallmark to me of like a, a really well done adaptation. So yeah, I'll give it to the film though. It's more culturally significant. I think most people think of the movie when they think of this, you know, of Shock and Redemption for good reason. Um, and, you know, shout out to Frank Darabont, who made a banger with this uh, with this movie. It's really good. And it's it's it's, uh, you know, held up over time. Uh, we're going to announce our next project at the very end. So stick around for that. If you liked this coverage of the Shawshank Redemption and you like our Stephen King coverage in general, um, let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Also, make sure you connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. YouTube, TikTok, Instagram Reels, find us everywhere. <laughs> uh, find our videos and, you know, like them, subscribe, uh, you know, help us spread the word. Absolutely. And if you wanted to support this podcast in another way, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film, where we put out monthly bonus episodes where we do things like cover the fly too, which we haven't done yet, but we will. Um, someone was recently commenting about how much they preferred the 1930s adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front to this new adaptation we covered. And it just further added to me about how, like, I do kind of want to watch that. Um, you know, it was very well regarded at the time it came out. And, and a friend of mine, by the way, with that, a friend of mine has a signed copy of the screenplay of the original 1930s wow. on the Western Front. Yeah, pretty amazing. Signed by the director. That's cool. Yeah, so yeah. that's the, another kind of thing we would probably do as a bonus episode. So if you wanted to get those episodes... Uh, you want to go to Patreon, uh, s sign up. You can also get merch on there. There's all kinds of options, and we'd love to have your financial support. Keeps the show going, honestly. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. All that's left to do is to announce our next project, which is, I think, it's. I'm excited about it. It's kind of a weird one. I don't know how many people are going to know about this movie, at, you know, at the very least, but we're going to be cover covering The Lathe of Heaven, 
by Ursula K. Le Guin, which at the very least, I think a lot of people would recognize that name. Legendary um, woman from the Pacific Northwest, Portland, Oregon, so local to me, who has been a voice in sci-fi fantasy um, you know, for many years. R.I.P. She's passed on fairly recently. Um, and I'm excited to get into her and to talk about her and to research her. Um, so we'll be covering that novel next week. Um, and, you know, I'm excited to dive into that. And then we're going to be following it up with a, with a film that uh, is apparently like pretty well regarded, has a good reputation, but is maybe not like super well known. So um, I'll be curious to see. Maybe we can actually help kind of shine a little more light on this movie. Maybe it's worth it. Yeah, I'm excited to get to Le Guin. I've been really wanting to read some of her work, never have. And I think that's, you know, something that needs to be remedied. So we're doing it. And uh, you, you you may, if you don't know The Lathe of Heaven, you might have heard of Earthsea, The Wizard of Earthsea. And like that, yeah. there were some adaptations that weren't as good that were based off of her work. So if that's who you're wondering who Le Guin is, that's it. So, yeah, I can't wait to get into it. And, you know, I'm hopeful. I, 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 you know, I like to explore the fantasy sci-fi space. And, you know, that's something that we, I think, both yeah. do. And I, I'm excited to get some, maybe a new perspective, something I haven't, I haven't read before. Absolutely, man. All right. This was a fun project. Always good to get back to Stephen King. I, I honestly would love to return to some horror by him at some point, maybe later this year. Uh, let us know if that's something you'd like to hear, if there are any particular projects, you know. But until next time, keep adapting. Thank you.